Good morning. My name is Todd Robinson, the assistant pastor here, and I have the great honor to bring you God's Word this morning. You see in your bulletin, we're going to be talking about a passage in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 19. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 876. So we'll start in Luke 16, verse 19, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Before we do, let's ask the Lord for help. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great joy and the great gift that we have in Sabbath worship and the great opportunity to hear your word. Lord, would you, by your spirit, soften our hearts and give us ears to hear the good news. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us In you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Thus ends the reading of God's word. There are some decisions in life that are irreversible. Once you do them, there's no turning back. For example, I'm presuming there are some of you out here who want to go skydiving or have gone skydiving. We can talk about that another time. I don't understand it. But once you jump out of that plane, there's no like, well, you know, I have second thoughts about this. You know, once you make that decision to jump, that's it. Like, you've got to figure it out from there. Uh, you know, it's a one-way door. There, there's no going back from that decision. Right? I mean, another example would be, you know, I think we've all kind of had that one email we sent and we're like, oh, wait, no. And once you send that email, I mean, there's just, there's no undo button for that one. Once you send it out, that's it. And you just kind of have to work from there. What we're looking at in this parable are two men who are walking through a door they can't turn around from. That door is called death. So this parable 
is about two men who are walking through death's door and having radically different outcomes. This parable really focuses primarily on the rich man and particularly his regret. Because once he's realized he has lived a life without faith, it's too late. He has already walked through the door. There is no turning back. He became so wrapped up in this life that he forgot about the next life. And I believe that's what this scripture is warning us this morning, that it matters how you live this life. It matters how you live this life. So let's look at these two men. We have this, so it starts with this description of the rich man in verse 19. Just gives them one verse. But you learn a lot from this one verse. It begins by giving, uh, you see he's extremely wealthy. He's, you know, he's the Jeff Bezos of our day. Multi-billionaire. Uh, you, you see this description, he's clothed in purple and fine linen. That's like royalty. Like, so he's dressed like royalty, dressed to the nines. And then he eats, he feasts sumptuously every day, which all that means is he ate a lot of the most expensive food every day. Like, he is, he is living his best life now. He is the full epitome of the good life, a, a very successful in this life. And then the very next verse, it turns to this man named Lazarus. Now, he couldn't have a more opposite life. He's living in destitution. He is so poor, he just waits at this rich man's gate and longs to eat from the food that falls from his table. Now, what's interesting about that, so back in those days, they didn't have napkins. So what they would do, they would take the ends of bread, and instead of using a napkin, they would just dip the bread you know, to absorb the food and wine or whatever you're drinking, and then they would just throw it, at, throw it off the table. It's essentially junk food. That's what Lazarus is longing to eat from, essentially the dirty napkin of the table. And if, if that wasn't bad enough, he has, these, he has these sores on him, which make him ceremonially unclean in Jewish days. They get licked by dogs, which the, the licking actually makes it worse. So, Lazarus is poor, sick, and unclean. And when you put these two men next to each other, and you ask the question, which one would you rather be? Which, whose life would you rather have? I think it's pretty obvious which one we would choose. We would choose the rich man. It's the easier life, right? Well, the next verse, things change. Things change drastically. They both die. Lazarus is carried by angels to heaven, but the rich man is buried and goes to hell. So now, if you ask the question again, which one would you rather be? You know, maybe your answer has changed between now and then. So the question we need to think about is why did Lazarus go to heaven and the rich man go to hell? Was it simply because he was rich? Or is Jesus trying to tell us something else? in this parable. Well, how Jesus answers that question, he gives us these two prayer requests from the rich man. Somehow from Hades, the, the rich man can see Abraham and Lazarus together in heaven. Now, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't read into that too much as, as that being like a description of heaven and hell. I believe Jesus is just using that as like a teaching device. It's a parable. It's like just follow, like Jesus is like, just kind of follow me for a little bit here. Don't read into it too much. Now the rich man calls out to Abraham, asking if Lazarus can give him a drop of water to quench his anguish in the flames. Now, ironically, that very request kind of answers the question of why he's there. There's a, there's a few important things to point out here. One, he knows who Abraham is. He just called him out. He said, Father, he called him Father Abraham. So he knows what uh, the Bible teaches. And then worst of all, he knows Lazarus because he calls Lazarus out by name too. You know, the rich man had the audacity even in the afterlife that he thought he could like command Lazarus to do something. Like, Lazarus, come on down here. Help me out a little bit. So that means this rich man knew what the, that the Bible called him to take care of the poor, knew that Lazarus was poor, starving and sick, yet walked by him every day. Instead, putting on lavish clothes and overeating overpriced food. He never helped Lazarus because, if we're being frank, what could Lazarus do for him? John Piper, in his sermon, calls it the what's-in-it-for-me attitude. What's in it for me? That's what prevented, or at least how the rich man rationalized not helping Lazarus. Now, we don't get a description of how Lazarus lived his life, but if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, we know it wasn't Lazarus' poverty that sent him to heaven. It was his faith in God. Likewise, we know it's not the rich man's wealth that sent him to hell. Uh, it was his clear unbelief. You know, there's, there's examples all throughout the Bible of rich people going to heaven. You know, Abraham being one of them. He, he was very wealthy in his time, yet was faithful and went to heaven. So that, and then what we see in Luke 6, we, again, Jesus saying, Woe to you that are rich, for you have received back your consolation. So, so what Jesus is saying is, those who have wealth are not condemned because they have money, but how they use their money. The rich man's faith was not in God, but in making his own kingdom on earth. And this is why we see Abraham rebu rebuking the rich man, saying that, you know, he received his good things on earth in that lifetime, and now he's in anguish. That the rich man was so consumed with his comfort in this world that he forsook his eternal comfort in the next. And that ought to be a warning to us that we should be careful not to get so caught up in keeping up with the Joneses that we forget about Jesus. Like, that's the one we need to be keeping with. Now, of course, to nuance this a little bit, the application of this is not if you spend money on yourself, you're going to hell. Like, that's clearly not the application. You know, again, I talked about, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon— they were all very, very wealthy for their time and were faithful, and I believe I'll see them in heaven one day. 
And you got to notice what the rich man is being rebuked for. He's not getting rebuked because he ignored all the poor in the city. Who is he? Who is he being rebuked for? He's being rebuked because he didn't take care of Lazarus. The one who was right in front of him. The one he ignored day in and day out. So it's not wrong, per se, to have a house or even a nice house. Or a car or even a, a cool car. Or a comfortable standard of living. That's not, uh, that's not a sin in and of itself. What you have to do, you have to get to the heart of the matter. And what helps me understand or begin to diagnosticate, is that a word? It is now. Uh, How I use to try to figure that out for myself is, is this question. Do you use what God has given you only for yourself or do you use it to be a blessing to others? Do you see your talents, your skills, Uh, and the opportunities that you have to make great wealth a gift uh, from a merciful God or you just being really great at what you do? Do you keep God's blessings for yourself or do you become a blessing to someone else? Now, we could broaden that uh, beyond wealth. Uh, You know, for example, I'm the youth pastor, so I'm going to pick on the youth here. Youth, believe it or not, y'all's great. y'all have a wealth of time and energy, might I add. So how do you use your time and energy? You know, so, so this passage, uh, though the immediate context is wealth, money, you could really broaden it to anything that God has given you because that's a gift. You know, in Luke 14, uh, again, Jesus says, When you have a feast, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I believe this is why it's better to give than it is to receive. When you graciously give out of love to someone else, expecting nothing in return, you're reflecting your creator who graciously has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So it matters how you live this life. We move on to the next prayer request that that Lazarus, or excuse me, the rich man has for Abraham. At this point, he's realizing, okay, it's too late for me. I'm here. I'm stuck. But what about my brothers? Which in some sense is a noble thing to think of. So the rich man pleads to Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers. Again, he's asked, he's like presuming Lazarus will just listen to him, even in the afterlife. Abraham responds by saying, that's actually unnecessary to send Lazarus from the dead for two reasons. The first one, they have Moses and the prophets. Your brothers, this is Abraham, your brothers have all they need. They have the Bible. They don't need Lazarus. You know, I have a brother who is very tech savvy. And so any little thing that goes wrong with my computer or anything technology related, I just call him up. And the first question he asks me every time is, did you Google it first? (laughs) And I've learned before I call him, I better have at least Googled it. So I can say like, yeah, I've Googled it, still can't figure it out. And And what my brother is trying to say is, 
You can figure it out on your own. It's right there. You just have to go look for it. It's right there. You just have to see it. In the same way, the, the, the rich man's brothers have all they need in the Bible to know God, to how to be saved, and how to live for him. It's all right here. Crazy enough, the rich man disagrees with Abraham. It's a very, it's a very bold approach to go. Of all people, telling Abraham the Bible is actually not enough. And what his brothers need is a miracle to be convinced. You can kind of see his, another hint into how he ended up where he is. He kind of has this uncompromising pride. There, there's just always something. And so Abraham responds again by saying it's unnecessary to send Lazarus. Because for the second reason, if the Bible won't convince them, neither will a miracle. Not even if someone should rise for the dead. That's a bold claim right there. Surely, you know, to put us, put us in that perspective, if you saw someone rise from the dead, you'd believe in God, right? That's, you know, I don't know about y'all, sometimes it, you feel tempted. You're like, man, wouldn't it have been easier if we could just go back in time to Jesus' day and like watch him turn water into wine or walk on water? Like, yeah, it'd be so easy to believe. It's right there. It's right in front of you, right? Then, you know, what Jesus is telling us here is that that's actually not the case. That the history of Israel would disagree with that claim. If I just saw a miracle, then I'll believe. You know, to, to go to Exodus, you know, the people of Israel had just been freed. They had just walked across the Red Sea on dry land. And not three days later, they're grumbling to God, wishing they could go back to Egypt. Furthermore, Jesus, too, experienced this degree of unbelief from people. Prior to this parable, uh, the, the historical person, Lazarus, was actually raised from the dead. I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that, the, that this name, Lazarus, is used uh, as well. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and then what the very next thing that said is the, the Jewish leaders plotted to kill Jesus. That was their response to seeing someone who is dead now alive. We need to kill Jesus. That was their conclusion. Furthermore, after Jesus was resurrected, the Jews, again, they didn't uh, believe, but they paid off the Roman guards uh, to say, and instead say the disciples stole the body. Now, these people knew their Bibles. Like these Jewish leaders knew it backwards and forwards. They, and they personally witnessed all the prophecies pointing to the Messiah fulfilled before their eyes in the person and work in Jesus. And they decided to kill him as a blasphemer. If that gives you a little window into the depravity of our hearts, that even if it's right in front of us, it's not enough for us to believe. And that's because it's not that God has failed to give us what we need to get into heaven. It's that we refuse to receive what he's given us. So it's not that God has failed to give us what we need to get into heaven. It's that we have refused to receive what he has given 
You know, God, too, has given you a Bible. And in that, you have all that you need to know about him, how to be saved in Jesus, and how we ought to live. It's all right here, guys. Hasn't changed. Now, the, there is a sense in which the secondary evidence, if you will, the historical, the literary, the archaeological history, those sorts of things can support our belief in the Bible and support the claims of the Bible, but the Bible's veracity does not hang in the balance of critical scholarship. It rests on the eternal decree of the Word of God. We're not one discovery away from the implosion of Christianity. You know, if you're waiting for that magic bullet miracle to be what convinces you to take the claims of Christianity seriously, you're going to be waiting for a long time. And by the time you realize it, it may be too late because you may have already walked through death's door. If the resurrection of Jesus isn't what convinces you of the truth of Scripture, Jesus is telling you nothing will. And so it matters how you live this life. And what we're about to do immediately following this lesson is, is in the Lord's Supper is, is do just that. We're going to proclaim Christ's death and resurrection. We look back and see, uh, if you look at the rich man, the rich man is, is really a, a picture of what, uh, it gives us a picture on what, uh, it really points us to Jesus in some ways. You know, if we look back and we see that Christ is what the rich man should have been. You know, think of it this way, Jesus in his infinite spiritual wealth, he, he is actually royalty. You know, he is, he is the king of the heavens and earth. Uh, but what did he do with his spiritual wealth? He became poor. For your sake, for my sake, us spiritually dead people lying on the gate. He came and he brought us into his palace. He clothed us with his righteousness. He fed us with the bread of life and he heals your wounds. And that's what we have the great privilege of professing by partaking in the Lord's Supper until he returns. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we confess how easy it is to make the little daily decisions to love ourselves over others. Lord, would we be so enveloped and overwhelmed in the way in which you've lavished us with your grace that we wouldn't count it a loss to sacrifice in this world knowing that we can have uh, an eternal impact on those around us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.